0: Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show we have Suresh Sankar, founder and CEO of Crown Data. In this episode, Suresh shares how he connects the dots looking back, going from an account director to marketing and then to founder. We then touched on what Crown Data is and how it helps enterprise customers with personalization. We also discussed Crown Data's process in identifying the gap in the market and the inspiration behind it, their different strategies on how to validate or invalidate markets and then Suresh shares his views on churn and retention when it comes to enterprise SaaS models. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter and enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. for revenue in the door. This is churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest-growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth.
1: How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You
0: need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing strategies tactics and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy i'm your host andrew michael and here's today's episode hey suresh welcome to the show
1: hey andrew lovely to be here thank you for having me
0: It's great to have you. For the listeners, Suresh is the CEO and founder of Crayon Data, a fast-growing big data and AI company, and the makers of Maya.ai, an AI-led personalization platform. Suresh started out his career as a client services director for JWT Fulcrum, the dedicated Unilever media buying agency, then made his move into marketing as the VP of marketing ABN AMRO Bank. Suresh then went on to found Redpool Solutions, an analytics and data company that was later acquired by IBM where he went on to serve as director of analytics. So my first question for you, Suresh, is how do you, your dots connect looking backwards, going from account director to marketing to founder?
1: That's a simply a great question because it sums up 36 years of a career in one thing. So I have actually spent all my life, Andrew, doing one thing, which is helping enterprises understand their customers Deep preferences, create products and services, price, retain them, engage them, grow them. That's all I've done. But I've just done it in very, very different forms. I've did it in sales, I did it in product management, advertising, then I did it in media, I did it in regional jobs in Singapore when I was covering Asia. But in that process, Andrew, I reached the conclusion that I started my career as a right brain marketer. And I realized that more and more it was becoming about data and the left brain and technology. Yeah. So that led me to stupidly quit my high-paying corporate job and set up Red Bull Analytics in 2000 in Singapore. And analytics wasn't a thing in 2000. It was like, people are talking about it. Nobody's actually doing it. Yeah. Uh, but over the next four years, what happened is that we evangelized the idea of using data to understand customers. You call it, you call it churn in telecom. You call it attrition in, in banking. You know, SaaS wasn't a thing then. So we became the number one analytics player. And that ended well when IBM acquired us after a global Search. And then again, when I looked at what, led to Crayon, it was again an epiphany of a moment. I was sitting down in 2011 and thinking about life and I said, how do you actually, you can't do a, an analytic services company play when the data explosion is magnificent. It's, it's like humongous. You don't have enough people. So then you need to build an AI or a big data platform that can do the same thing better than a human being, faster than a human being, cheaper than a human being. So I said, okay, the next evolution of this whole journey is to become Build an AI and big data platform and that led to the idea of Crayon Data which I set up in 2012.
0: Very, very interesting and maybe you want to let us know a little bit about Crayon Data, what it is you do uh, a little bit about.
1: I think what we try to do in Crayon is very simple. We try to go to really large enterprises and we've chosen the path of the large enterprise model as enterprise SaaS rather than a SME SaaS model and we tell the large enterprise today if you are not digital and if you're not offering personalization you just simply cannot engage the new customer every consumer in the world expects to be dealt a personalized experience service now if you're Netflix if you're Spotify if you're Amazon this is dead easy for you to do this whole thing of being relevant and personal and on digital why because the metrics they focus on is how many customers do I sign up how often do they come back what my monthly active user how do I keep them engaged? How much money do they spend? It comes easily to them. Now, just shift this to a bank, an airline, a hotel, a traditional company. They talk about it. It's hard for them to walk that. So Crayon's proposition from the beginning was very simple when he built this platform called AI, Can I help a traditional large enterprise deliver Netflix, Spotify-like personalized experiences that drive customer engagement? In a matter of weeks, without them having to go through the whole rigmarole of identifying the platform, bringing in the data, building the capability, etc., so we help deliver those kind of experiences in in literally weeks uh, when we start work with large enterprises.
0: Very interesting. Uh, and then so this whole process then like identifying the gap in the market and working towards like how did you start out by identifying and seeing, okay these were the type of the businesses that we wanted to go after these traditional sort of like older incumbents now trying to adopt an inter like personalization like where did the inspiration come to focus on that market?
1: So like with all startups uh, Andrew what happens is that you think you have a very, very clear idea, clear vision. You want to say, listen, I know what the problem statement is. I go out and try to solve it. And of course, when you have a success, people write the story backward and make it look like it all worked. But it's never like that. You're going up and down sideways and every which way. And the first three, four years of Crayon were not dissimilar. I think one thing that's remarkable is that we've stayed close to the core vision of the firm. We've kept the same technology basis, the patents and the way we built the AI and the graph and all that but everything else has changed. So in the beginning, we thought we could go in there and talk to companies and say, hey, we can talk to hundreds of companies and say, here's a personalization platform, use it for $5,000, et cetera. And we quickly realized that if you really want to do personalization well and drive customer engagement, which is the end benefit, when personalization is a capability, that by itself is nothing. What I deliver to them is the ability to understand your customer. And we call it three things, right? We say, profile your customer better, engage them better, drive more transactions and revenue. That's the three use cases that we actually do, right? So if you want to drive customer engagement, we said it's a bloody complex set of processes, it's a bloody complex set of technologies. you got to integrate it into multiple workflows. Every function in a company looks at this very differently. So we realized that this whole idea of this $5,000 a month, $10,000 a month, uh, low value SaaS is not the right model when you're trying to sell a very complex engine. So we pivoted after about three or four years into saying we will be in what we call the enterprise SaaS segment. And in the journey of three or four years, Andrew, we went through a lot. We tried travel, we tried hotels and airlines, we tried banking, we tried advertising, we tried multiple verticals. And we had obviously innovation projects that worked with each of them. But when we came down to scaling, we said that the large enterprise focused on lifestyle businesses, which for us meant consumer banking, credit card, debit card, wallets, travel industry. Of course, post-COVID travel is not a big thing. Travel, e-commerce, players like this who are dealing with consumer lifestyles where engaging the customer is simply the most important thing in the daily life of a marketer is the kind of enterprise that we wanted to work with. And then we said, we'll be a large enterprise SaaS. We'd rather go in there and be, if I were to use an analogy, I would rather be Adobe than I would be let's say Slack or Freshworks or so well. Nothing, it's, it's not a comment on either one, but Adobe goes in there and they're saying, here's a half a million dollar license. There's a bunch of integration that you need to, but once you're in, that you're in for a really long term. Yep. So we chose that model to go into the thing. And that took us quite honestly, Andrew, if this went, ends as well as my previous startup, I'll write the story differently, but that took <laughs> us four years of, of like various kinds of experimentation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I want to dive into the experimentation on that end a little bit, and also in a bit, I think we'll talk a little bit about uh, sort of the enterprise SaaS metrics when it comes to general retention. But you mentioned you you tried like various verticals and you were testing different things out, and that was like over the course of three or four years. What did that testing look like? Like, how did you validate or invalidate certain markets as you were going along? And what were some of the type of tests you were trying to work? Was it uh, marketing related? Was it sales? What were you doing?
1: So it is largely sales related and partnership related, I would say, not marketing related. I mean, you, know, you even if you're trying to sell a $100,000 subscription to a company a year annually, an ACV of 100,000, you have to absolutely be with your customer, talk to them. They don't sign hundred thousand dollar checks very easily, right? It's not $10 a month, something that I can download and use. I think a lot of the experimentation was sales. So what we did is we obviously brainstormed different areas where we thought the core tech would work. Advertising was one of them because we said, how do you do cookie-less targeting? We were really ahead of time. Now cookie-less targeting is a thing. In 2014 yeah. and 15, when we started working on it, it wasn't a thing. We went into travel and we talked to a large hotel chain. We talked to large air- airlines. We went into the space of consumer banking, quite obviously. We went and talked to a few telcos. So we tried a sales model where we went in and tried to pitch a project and say, this is almost like an innovation project that we'll come in and do because we have the core tech and we can make it work for you. And to some extent, that's what all large, all startups do, right? If you take Workday, which is now big, it started off as a single tenant on-prem installation in, in an investment bank in the U.S., because you go in there, you want that lead client and you want that lead client to really work with you because what you're doing with that lead client is not the revenue. What systems am I touching? What are the learning of the data? How, what all can go wrong? That's what we're trying to do in that whole phase. And the second part of it was a partnership-led model, right? We went and talked to you know, a couple of big partners. One is in the advertising space and media buying space. We talked to people in the airline industry and we said, how can we help you solve those problems as well? So that entire space of experimentation was, by the way, we didn't call it experimentation then. We were dead sure. We were like, oh, okay, we're going to go do it. We signed this partnership. We're going to get hundred clients because of that. But as it happened, as you go through that, as you sell to the client, as you make them use it, as you find out the price points, you realize some things don't work. The people may sign up for a pilot, but not convert. That what they do in an innovation budget is very different from a BAU budget. You discover those kinds of things.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then you figure it out along the way, which segments are best suited and how you can uh, close more effectively. I can imagine as well. And, like, and
1: I can give you two, two really, I can give you two customer conversations that turned the pivot please. for us, if I, if I may, right? Yeah. The first is I was talking to a CEO of a bank and the CEO, global CEO, uh, global consumer banking CEO of a bank. And he says, Oh, I believe you've done a pilot for us. And I said, yes. And he said, what happened? And I said, they didn't, they didn't find it useful. And funnily, he asked me this question. He said, how much do you charge for your pilot? And I said, It's is $125,000. It's about $10,000 a month for the pilot. And he said, no wonder. He said, what do you do? And I told him what we do and what the platform is. He said, why don't you try asking for a million dollars? And there's a conversation with him. Yeah. And I said, I can't say, when you're at $125,000, what do you mean ask for a million? He said, well, let me tell you how it works in a bank. Projects need to be of certain size for it to come up to me for for review. Yeah. In my monthly review, if it's a million dollars, it makes a cut. I want to know, what are we spending that million dollars on? Are we getting value out of it? If I have to review it, the guy who's coming to the meeting has to prepare for it, even if it's one slide. If he has to prepare for it in the first month and it has not made progress in the second month when he comes back for that review, he's going to say, I have to make it successful. Then he's going to go back and tell his guys to make it In a way, he says, the fact that you're charging more money in a large environment actually makes for better success. And Andrew, that is simply the most counterintuitive learning about customer retention. Sometimes high value is better for for low churn. There are other stories, but I'll stop there in the interest of this conversation.
0: Now, it's super, super interesting. And definitely it's one of those counterintuitive things, but uh, like listening to you explain through the workflow and, and the bank, it makes a lot of sense as well at the end of the day, because it's not just like, okay, it's a $10 subscription or a thousand dollar subscription that's at stake. It's literally my job now because we've taken a bet on a million dollar piece of software and I need to make this work basically. So I see how it adds positive pressure to the adoption phase for sure. Very interesting. So you mentioned that was one of the conversations, like you said, there was a couple, what was the other conversation that sort of turned, it, uh, turned the lights on for you?
1: So uh, I'm going to share with you the internal side of the other conversation and then I'll, I'll try and yeah. get it right. Cool. One of the things you realize is that if you're selling to a large enterprise could be a bank, an airline, a hotel, could be even a small bank, right? when you're selling to the large enterprise, Everyone says the sales cycle should become short. Your sales cycle cannot become short beyond a point. It can only be compressed to a certain amount of time. Maybe it's six months. But typically, you have to accept that it's a six to nine month sales cycle, simply because that's the pace at which they work. They have to go through processes, compliance, risk, data security, all of this needs to be done. And we are a data company. Now, it may not be the same if you're not a data company. If you're not touching data, maybe it's a lot easier. And then we realized that is the actual sales cycle, the cost of acquisition of a customer. And everyone talks about retention and and churn, but the cost of acquisition of a customer is so high. And then if your LTV, your value of that contract or your ACV is low, you are spending a shitload of money for a very low value contract. And it's going to take you years to make it up. So we realized that not only was it great sense to get into the radar of the bank to make it successful or the large enterprise to make it successful. But we also realize that it's much better unit economics for us from an LTV to CAC ratio. So now, for example, when I go in there and I say it's a half a million dollar subscription to start with or whatever it is, and let's say you have a rep and the rep is earning, let's say a couple of hundred thousand dollars. He literally needs to sell us one contract a year for it to become, for me to have a great LTV to CAC ratio. I mean, obviously yeah. that's on the, the target. Yeah. So that's the other interesting side of it, because sometimes when we look at these things, we look at one type of metric and we tend to ignore the cost side of that equation. What's the cost of that? So I think these are some of my learnings as we did the pivot and said, we want to be in the large enterprise space. Interestingly also, I think one of the things that happens is that we realized that we were using capital. So this is the other story that somebody told me, right? He says, I cannot implement this solution if you give it to me and say, here's a bunch of APIs, use it if I'm a large enterprise. By definition, I don't have the tech savvy. I don't have the tech talent. I don't have the process. So the guy said, why are you guys absorbing all? This is actually a client. He's saying, why are you guys absorbing the cost of doing all those integrations into your product platform? Just tell me this is a subscription and tell me this is all the cost of the integration and I'll pay for the integration happily. I don't expect you to have the integrations upfront because I know that the version I have of this database, the version I have, all that is going to be different from the last client. So he says, just pass it on and we're happy to do it. It'll actually speed up your sales cycle. Otherwise yeah. you're trying to put in all of that into this. And um, so what we also realize is that in this whole process is the clients are telling us, we love the platform. Your product will never be meet all the requirements and use cases that we have. And if you have to customize or integrate, that's okay. We'll pay you for it. So that is the other big learning that we had, that a platform can be larger than the product. Since you would not have built all the product features, sometimes just talk to the client. They're happy to pay for those features to come on the roadmap or to pay for them as a customization or integration. I know a lot of SaaS guys don't think like that, Yeah. but I think this is very critical if you want to sell to a large enterprise. If you don't think like that, you can't get it.
0: I, I think for sure. I think we actually like, uh, had this conversation there with my co-founder and Looking at an example, even uh, didn't not really enterprise focus, but Slack, what they did with their initial enterprise plan, where they were literally selling the plan, but just had coming soon's on the actual plan itself, and uh, that they were getting signups, they were getting new customers at enterprise level, but. Knowing that they hadn't even had half the features they'd run in the early days, they were just trying to keep up, keep the wheel spinning, but still be able to sell into the enterprise. I definitely see that point as well, was something we we're actually chatting about today. And it's interesting as well. I think we previously as well hosted Christoph Jantz on the show from Point Nine Capital. And he talks a little bit about the uh, different customers that you can go after to build a $100 million business. And uh, he has a few different buckets. And I think the one that you're talking about was like you were going after elephants or deers, that he calls it. And then you started going after whales. and the interesting thing then about that as well, it's also just that sheer number of customers you need to get to that $100 million uh, dollar mark as well just uh, reduces quite drastically as well. Absolutely. Although the pool becomes smaller, it also just becomes uh, a lot bigger of a deal when you do close a deal as well. So, yeah.
1: Absolutely. I think the that elephants, deer, whales model is such a good one. And most of the time, everybody seems to think that it's only going after the minnows yeah. and saying I'll start with free and a dollar a month is the only way. There are so many different ways to build an enterprise. I mean to build a SaaS business. We've chosen to go after the elephants.
0: Yeah, for sure. And the one thing we were talking about just before the show, obviously, when it comes to enterprise SaaS, the the unit economics, the metrics are all very different. And the way you go about approaching the challenge. So I think like once you get a contract like of that size and of that nature and as you have the amount of effort that goes into the activation period and getting things set up it's almost very difficult to be pulled out of those situations so from your perspective like how are you viewing churn and retention how are you going about either like decreasing churn or increasing retention what are some of the main levers you're trying to pull for growth with existing customers
1: Right. So I think there's not one strategy in this whole model. I think there's multiple ones. You actually mentioned, touched on one of them, which is the whole, what Slack did, right? Which is the whole idea of a roadmap. Now, one of the things that keeps customers excited is actually the idea that, okay, I don't get everything today, but I know something is coming. And in the old world, when let's say Oracle used to have a release of a database once in like every two years, no one knew what was coming. Yeah. But the idea of having a constant conversation with your customer on what is coming and tell them, listen, be a partner. Tell me what you want. And it may not be available today, but I'll put it into my backlog and I'll put it in my roadmap and I'll help you build it out. I find that that's a very good thing. And I'll tell you why, Andrew, not because of money or not because of metrics. This becomes a strategic conversation that you have with a customer. And then the customer is like, when they're sitting inside and doing the revelation, you're not in the room, he's saying, I know that's not available. I know the other guy is giving it to me, but many things have already worked inside the software and I know this is coming. So that strategic engagement becomes very good. And, you know, even if you're, let's say in a business where you're saying, you're not talking to your customer very frequently, it's still possible for you to like what's lacked it. So to me, that's a very big thing in customer retention. uh, And, almost critical when you're a large uh, enterprise uh, SaaS model. But I think in any level of SaaS, publishing your roadmap is a very useful thing. Because one of the things that people do when they switch, and I've seen it, right? We've switched from last year, the height of the pandemic, for example, we switched from using Google G Suite and Zoom and Slack, three different platforms, to just using Microsoft. But we went through a lot and every time we looked at it and said, oh, but I get this feature, but it's coming there. Should I wait or should I not wait? When you put the feature out there, I think it plants doubts in people's mind. The second thing is obviously metrics, right? And I think metrics matter more than anything else. For us, the way we do engagement and we do this stuff with Churn, Andrew is we focus on what we call the North Star metric that we focus on is the metric that matters to the customer. So for us, it's not... If I want to protect my churn, I put focus on the value that I have to give to the customer. And that, because our engine is about customer engagement, is what you call the monthly active user. How many users are you engaging? Did I help you improve that engagement? How much are they spending? Did I help you improve that spend through my engine? That number is something that we try to relentlessly track in our business. If I deliver that number, then I know that my churn, which is a consequence of the value I deliver, will be lower. And then we got a bunch of subsidiary metrics in each of them, right? How many customers did I onboard? How much did I engage them? How much are they driving the transactions? What am I doing? Each of them as a subset, which is what the dashboard that we show our clients is.
0: Yeah, I think that's like one of the the holy grails when it comes to metrics and analytics is actually being able to measure the value that your product delivers to your customer, the direct value. So not just what features they're interacting with or how they're using the product, but more what is the outcome that the product delivers. And uh, some businesses can do it easier than others, but when you can actually measure the direct impact that you're giving, because I think ultimately they come to you with a problem or they're looking to improve certain aspects and, if you can prove to them that this is what's actually happening with the product or service, it's almost like it gives no reason ever for churn. I also really like the point as well about uh, the roadmap uh, that you mentioned, like having those conversations with customers and uh, allowing them to see what's coming and it's void because also the other aspect is like, At year one, the problems that your customer has are not the same as year zero when they first purchase your product. Their needs are changing, they're evolving over time and the same problems that they have today aren't what they were before. They've now become more sophisticated. They have a personalization setup. Now it's about the next level and having that discussion, being able to see and preempt what those next steps are really great way of like avoiding them looking elsewhere and seeing what else is in the market uh, to solve some of the new challenges that they have. Uh Very nice. uh, of course, I think things yeah. like,
1: sorry, if I may, yeah. uh, uh, I think other things also matter. Structural agreements matter. Far too often with SaaS models where you're trying to say, I have 100 customers, you the only way you actually do it is to say, I'll charge you $1,000 a month. But if you sign for annual contract, I'll charge you $10,000, right? So you get them to pay upfront. And that works, obviously, for one year. And then you say, let me start putting in all the effort at the end of the year to get that person to renew. But one of the things I, again, when you look at it in the enterprise SaaS market, what we try and do is, what is the structural binding that I do in terms of the cancellation, in terms of the ways in which they can get out of a contract, is one thing that we try and focus on a lot. And this really means that we want to make it difficult for them when they come to the moment to pull the plug. To make it difficult to pull the plug, you have to integrate very deeply into systems. So that taking out that needle of the engine that we put will cause them more pain than than just leaving it there. So I'll give you an example, right? We have, we're working with a very large credit card company. The guy said, we love your personalization engine, but we want you to build a feature where we'll deliver the personalization to the concierge, not on the digital app. We didn't have that feature. We talked about it. It was a roadmap issue. We said, should we do it? We said, we'll build it. Now, here's the thing. Any customer of that credit card company that calls the concierge is now seeing a screen that's powered by our application. Of course, they can churn. They have to think about what will happen to that screen. Yeah. Now they've trained all that people in that screen. What will happen to that screen now if you take it? So I think that's what I'm talking about. How do you build in structural bonds into workflows that people have, which makes it harder for them to pull out is another thing that I think people should think about.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and I think, like, at that point, you say, once you get built into somebody's workflow, and if even like stronger, like you say, if it's user facing for their users as well, it becomes like a part of their experience, it becomes very, very difficult. It just really becomes part of their infrastructure. And once you become part of the infrastructure, it's like one of those forgotten things. It's not okay, should we import something new and try and figure it out? Like, it's solving our problem. Like, we have other bigger problems. We have other requests on our roadmap. Like, we don't need to do spending engineering resources, working on competency. That's not our core competency. So I want to ask a question that I ask every guest that joins the show. Let's imagine a hypothetical scenario. So you join a new company and churn retention is not doing good at this company. And uh, the CEO comes to you and says, hey, Suresh, we really need to turn things around. We need to do it fast. We have 90. You're in charge and you're going to try and reduce churn for this company. But here's the catch you're not going to say, I'm going to speak to customers, understand the pain points and then tackle the first problem. What you're going to do is just take something that you've seen be effective in the past in one of the companies that you've been at and run with that strategy blindly. Like, What would be that one thing that you would want to try uh, for this company that you've seen be effective in reducing uh, churn and retention quickly?
1: I presume we're talking about I arrive at a company, it's a B2B SaaS company, right? It's not, you're not talking about, let's say, a telco or a bank or something like that. Yes. So I think the one thing I would really focus on is to make sure that we go to every customer and get them the monthly active dashboard, my monthly active user dashboard operational in more and more users inside that company. What I want is I want my product, whatever the product is. I don't, you know, it could be a workflow system, it could be personalization, it could be anything else. I want people in that company to work, wake up, and say, let me go and ask this thing first thing in the morning the question that I want to ask you. Yeah. If yeah, so that dashboard, I would work on that one layer saying, How do I show people every morning what my product is doing for you in your life? That one feature. Or most of the time the feature exists, but it's never something that we put out there. It's never something that we go and talk about. So that's the one thing that I would pick, uh, Andrew.
0: It's to show the value and how it's being used on a daily basis. I, I'll,
1: give you a, I'll give you an example of something that I think really works for me. Yeah. Uh, we moved into, we've tried different OKR tools. Uh, this is not a plug for the company I'm going to talk about. But we moved into a new OKR tool about seven months ago. And they're integrated into you know our Microsoft Teams. They're a good tool. They're an OKR tool. There are other OKR tools out there. Every Friday at 3 p.m. Singapore time, the damn thing pops up and tells me, update your OKR for the week. It's not just the reminder. The moment I update it, it tells me where I stand. What happens is, it's, I don't know about this one. I don't know whether they thought through it. I don't know whether it's a matter of luck and yeah. But because it's Friday and it's about 3 p.m. or 4 p.m., I feel good because after I fill in my OKR update, I get a view of where I stand. That view enables me to go after the weekend and say, am I doing well or not? Did I have a good week or not? Yeah, And I'm just giving a small example of how something like an OKR tool, active user, how much traction did I make, makes me feel good about it. A feature like that is what I would build and, and promote
0: just to understand the timing and stuff. Yeah, it could go both ways. That could have, have a really good weekend or a really bad weekend. I, <laughs> hopefully, hopefully way, things...
1: you're to, I mean, startup people don't have good weekends <laughs> anyway, but yeah.
0: I get what you're saying. Cool. So last question I want to ask then for today. What's one thing that you know about channel retention today that you wish you knew when you got started with your career?
1: The idea of loyalty was very strong when I started my career and loyalty is still a big thing, right? People talk about loyalty marketing. Yeah. And I have felt for the last 10 years or so that loyalty is dead. There is no loyalty. Now, the moment you think there is no loyalty, your entire attitude, whether you're a B2B SaaS company, whether you're in a bank, whether, whichever industry you're in, then you start to think about the idea. I'm actually talking about a root thing, not a technique and all that. We have to start with the assumption that loyalty is dead. No one is loyal to anybody anymore for anything. And I feel that if I had this thought in my head 15, 20 years ago, I would have done many things very differently. By the way, it is very hard to get this thought into people's head. It is just very hard because people say, no, no, I'm very good at this. i am done, we've done this, we've done that. But I just keep saying all of these are band-aids that we are putting on. The problem now in the world is that when you have a world of infinite choice, When everything is one or two clicks or three clicks away, loyalty is completely dead. You should just... So that's the one thing that I really wish I had cooperated on a decade ago.
0: Yeah. I think, like I mentioned this a few times on the show as well, but I think one of the things that I really like uh, was something that David Dominant from Hotjar mentioned to me once. And he's like, when you build a product or service, you should ask yourself like where you sit on the budget list. So when things get tough, are you on the top or you're at the bottom? Uh, and are you going to be one of the first products that are thrown out or the, the last uh, to leave and it goes back to what you were saying earlier in terms of like how do you build yourself into people's workflow like that's how you build loyalty like uh, inverted quotes it's more just like how can ingrained can you get in the workflow because like you say today with the abundance of choice it really is just so easy to make switching costs like with new tools coming to market, like segments. I remember this as well. At Hotshot, like Segment used to be a gateway to get out of every tool. So Segment introduced like a replay feature where you could replay your data yep. to any new service or tool. So you were no longer locked into any other traditional tool with your data there because now you could just take that data and put it into any other analytics product. So the switching costs like today have just become lower and lower uh, as we're going forward. And I really uh, totally agree with you on this point that there is, there is no loyalty today. So Figuring that out and appreciating that.
1: I'm just thinking, sorry to interrupt, Andrew, but I'm just thinking, just like we had a situation where I switched out of Zoom and Slack and go G Suite into Microsoft Teams, Microsoft Teams shouldn't be resting on its laurels thinking I'm loyal. I'm not going to be loyal. If something else comes along and it's really good and they make the switching cost low, I will switch. And therefore, it's a constant thing, right? I need to keep doing things to make sure I'm relevant. And there's another counterintuitive thought that I'll share with you. Sorry, I'm going to take one more minute because I think it's a very interesting point. We talked about workflows and I said, make yourself visible. I think the other extremely brilliant strategy that is very hard to do is to make yourself completely invisible. If you're so deep in the system that no one knows you exist, then when they go on and find out that I'm going to pull you out, they're going to struggle. So I think you've got to be highly visible or highly invisible and deeply embedded.
0: I like the, the two counter um, points, but definitely like serving the same purpose I think, at the end of the day.
1: Yeah.
0: Very nice. Uh, Sarissa, it's been a pleasure chatting to you today. Is there any final thoughts you want to leave the listeners with? Like anything they should be aware of from your side, or from Crown Data?
1: I'm and- Andrew, like you, I'm a podcaster. I run a podcast called Slaves to the Algo. I believe the entire future of the world is going to be driven by data and algorithms. And fundamentally, it's already taking over all our lives. Sometimes we are aware of it. Sometimes we are not. And my whole podcast, Slaves to the Algo, is about demystifying the age of the algorithm. And as the name would suggest, I think the jury is out there. Are we going to be slaves to the Algo or will we be masters of it? And these are choices that we need to make. And I think a lot of the thoughts that I have on not just churn and retention, but how industries are evolving, how people are using data is in that. So... Would love to have your viewers and listeners kind of come in and listen to Slaves to the Algo. Very
0: interesting. Definitely drop a note uh, in the show notes as well to check that out. Uh, and yeah, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure hosting you today and I wish you best of luck now going forward.
1: And thank you. And very much the same to you, Andrew, as well. And uh, hopefully maybe all be blessed with the, with the curse of no churn.
0: Curse of no churn. No. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Thanks very much, Rish. Cheers.